the Sermon on the Mount, and we have been um, going through this section by section. It's one of the most rich and dense portions of Scripture. Every week it just feels like I'm cut to the heart preparing it, and I think that uh, many of you have experienced something of the same as Jesus' words just sort of wash over us each time we open it up. And today is going to be no different, I'm absolutely convinced. I think that what we're looking at today is, as we'll see, one of the most important subjects that we could look at. We're looking from verse 25, um, the subject of anxiety. I want to read just one verse, and then we're going to take it verse by verse rather than reading the whole section up front. So let's read verse 25, and we'll take it from there. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I think that this subject of anxiety says, do not be anxious. I think the subject of anxiety is probably one of the most relevant and important subjects, and I'll give you a few reasons up front why I think that's the case. The first is that I think there's probably never been a time when we've been more obsessed with ourselves and particularly with our bodies. Doesn't Jesus say here that, the life, um, that life is more than food and the body more than clothing? But it seems to me that we are acutely obsessed with those things in our age. So back in 1978, so we're talking nearly, um, nearly 40 years ago, John Stott, who wrote an amazing book on the Sermon on the Mount, was given a glossy magazine, I don't know if it exists anymore, called Accent. And he said, he was just using it as an illustration of this back in the 70s, he said it was full of advertisements for champagne, cigarettes, food, clothing, antiques, carpets, how to win a luxury cabin cruiser, or 1,200 bottles of whiskey. There's stuff about Caribbean holidays, staying in bed, high fashion warm underwear. I didn't know there was such a thing as high fashion warm underwear. Reindeer meat and snowberries. And, and you think, you know, it is quite comical, isn't it, when we look from the outside in at the kinds of things that we're obsessed with this society. And he goes on, he says, from beginning to end it concerned the welfare of the body and how to feed it, clothe it, Warm it, cool it, refresh it, relax it, entertain it, titivate it, and titillate it. I wonder if you think that's changed. I think, if anything, it's become more acute today than it was 40 years ago in the 70s, right? If anything, it's become more acute, because what was then probably just the perks of the elite has dribbled down into the rest of society. I've just watched, I've been in London for 13 years and seen how the kind of food revivals taken off in this city. And how now, I think, while we're not going to have the same, exactly the same anxieties that Jesus was speaking about here, when people were nervous that they might not get another meal to feed their family, we have a whole new kind of anxiety that obsesses around um, food and the fear of missing out and wanting to try new foods and body image and all the insecurities that come around the body. And so all these things are no less relevant. So when Christ says here, isn't life more than food or drink and the body more than clothing, I think as Christians we've got to hear that with a particularly acute relevance today. Here's a second reason why I think it's important for us. I think that perhaps now more than ever, we're stressed and anxious about life. Now I don't think that that's because um, life is more stressful now. If anything, it's less stressful, isn't it? Um, We have never experienced more security than we do right now living in a a country like Britain 
in the 21st century. There, there, is, there is so little to, to be anxious about, it's laughable, isn't it? But we seem to be more stressed than ever. We, we seem to have substituted Father God for the kind of nanny state. And now, though our lives are totally safe and wrapped up and secure, if anything, this seems to have fed and, and, and compelled and driven people's state of anxiety and fear about life. And I think one of the evidences of this, the fact that we're coping worse than ever, the fact that people are more of the edge than ever, the fact that we talk so much about mental illness now that comes out of fears and that comes out of anxieties and that comes out of stress... I think it has a lot to do with this being cut off from God as Father, which we'll speak about today. And one of the great evidences of it is the explosion in the interest of meditative techniques and mindfulness. A few weeks ago, we had a really robust discussion about this at our life group. I I had no idea how it it came up. It certainly wasn't part of the study. But we ended up talking for a good half hour, didn't we, about mindfulness, because I doubt there's a person in this room who hasn't encountered something of that. And what is it? Why is there this current trend towards it? I'd suggest it's because people feel stressed and anxious. And this is offered as a kind of a cure for it. So we talked about a life group last year on Alpha Course. There were two people in my group who are very strong advocates. One of them, a soldier who faces life and death situations regularly, and was saying that this is something that he looks to as a help for coping with that kind of a level of stress. Uh, I was at LSE just a couple of weeks ago talking to the students there, and one of them was an atheist or a humanist, I think he would call himself, listening to me as a Christian present about Jesus. And afterwards, I, I managed to bump into him in the corridor, and uh, he, he was thankful and appreciative, and we talked a little bit about the message and stuff. And then he, he said he was going off to a seminar on mindfulness, And I find it fascinating that it's become the kind of new, acceptable spirituality that isn't spiritual. It's a kind of substitute spirituality designed to offer peace in a world that lacks peace. And so I feel like I'm coming across it again and again and again. Another guy was telling me only last week that he listens to a podcast. And on that podcast by Tim Ferriss, who's known to some of you, um, he says that one of the things that all the top CEOs um, that he's come across in some of these big American companies, is what they have in common is that they're all into mindfulness meditative techniques. And you ask yourself, well, why? Isn't it because we are anxious and stressed as a society and there's so much compelling us in that direction? There's two reasons. We're obsessed with the body. We're stressed. And here's the third, and it's really just the coming together of all that. I think that there is an urgent need for us as Christians to think about this. Because Christ wants us to stand out in this area. And it's one area where we have the opportunity to stand out more than in many other things. We live in a broadly moral society. And so the Christian church, whilst we have areas that we disagree with massively with the society at large, there are also areas of overlap. It's a Christianized society. But this is one area where I suspect Christians can and should stand out in extraordinary contrast to the world around us. Jesus doesn't want us to be people who are anxious and stressed. Why? Because you are preaching by your life about the God that you believe in. When you tell people that you believe in in God, when you tell people that you're a Christian, if indeed you are, and I'm not assuming that all of us are, People are not just interested in what you say about him. 
They're interested in what it does to your life. They're watching you in the moment-to-moment interactions that you have at work and how you deal with the stress of your job and so on. This is one area in which I think as Christians we ought to have a profound difference to the people around us. Why? Because we're preaching all the time by our attitude and by the confidence that we have about the God that we believe in. Fear and anxiety tells people that there's nobody taking care of us. Right? Whereas what Jesus wants us to do here is to come face to face with the living God who is our Father, who cares for us, and let that reshape and the way we feel about life. And that's why I think it's a command. Do not be anxious, he says. We're going to just go through this section then. And I want to show you six reasons why... I almost held up one hand. I don't have six fingers. So there we are. Six reasons why Jesus talks about not being anxious in this, <clears throat> in this section. The first is this. He says, don't be anxious because you are more loved and more cherished than you know. Look at the birds of the air, he says in verse 26. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Consider them, he says. Look at them. Pay attention to the birds of the air. I was thinking about this. I was thinking that actually that's a little bit challenging in London because the birds of the air tend to be pigeons, don't they? <laughs> and so when he says that your heavenly father, they neither sow nor reap, and your heavenly father feeds them, we know that they're being fed mostly the chips from Trafalgar Square, aren't they? So it doesn't quite have the same poignancy as it might do when you're looking at sparrows and whatever in the countryside. But the point stands. He says, look at the birds of the air and consider their way of life. Now, we need to be clear that he's not talking about a kind of carefree attitude that doesn't think about the future. And he's not talking about, um, you know, advocating a lifestyle of foraging. You know, I've, you've seen, there are people even in our society who, who go around digging food out of the bins behind supermarkets and living very much by foraging for things. Um, and, and Jesus absolutely is not talking about that at all. He's making one very, very simple and clear point. He's saying, if God cares about the birds... How much more does he care about you? Because you're actually worth more than them. Now, I think we can pretty much assume that is something that we all commonly hold as a belief. In fact, 99% of people that you will bump into will believe that a person is worth more than a bird, which is why we are so happy to eat them. Probably one of the only exceptions to that are those kind of extreme ultra animal rights activists. Um, But most people accept that a person is worth more than a bird. But I'd, I'd argue that's probably a groundless assumption because a thing only has value if it belongs to someone. You think about this. If the universe had no people or living beings in it, that which we would count valuable now would not have any value in such a universe. So things like diamonds. A diamond has no value unless there is a person to possess it and to hold it as precious. A diamond would have no more value than a lump of granite or coal. And yet, it seems to me that people assume, for whatever reason, I think it's irrational, that we're of more value than the birds, even though they don't believe that we're owned by anyone. But for a Christian, we don't believe that we're just of more value in a very general, vague sense. We believe that we are more value because we belong to someone. 
Because we know that God, our Father in heaven, possesses us. And if he cares about the birds, how much more does he care about you and your day-to-day needs? Which means that when you're feeling anxious, my friends, I'm assuming that all of us feel this from time to time. I know I'm looking around the room and seeing some of you who face extremely high-pressure work environments. And others of you who can worry about even the smallest, most trivial things. We all have anxieties, things that weigh on us. I think that what, what it means is that we, when we're facing stress and anxiety, it means that either we don't believe or we don't feel that God is loving and caring towards us in that moment. One of the signs or the symptoms of that would be your answer to this question. Where do you run to immediately, reflexively, when you are most anxious? Do you run to your spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend? Do you run to a particular friend? Do you run to your mom? There's no shame in that. (laughs) Coyote. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't resist. (laughs) Whilst God puts people around us and wants us to rely on all kinds of people, Nevertheless, I think God wants to be the first one that you go to when you're anxious. It says in 1 Peter 5, he tells us to cast all our anxieties on him. Cast them on him. It's like, it's like a visual way of saying, I've got this burden, Lord, I want to I place it on your lap. Please deal with this. Because, he says, he cares for you. Jesus says, Don't be anxious because you are more loved and cherished than you realize. Number two, he says, don't be anxious because it actually doesn't help you in any way whatsoever. So he goes on in the next verse. He says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? My wife's a doctor. I had the opportunity to sit and ask her, see, what happens when you are anxious? What happens to your body when you're anxious? She began to list these things off and In me telling you this, I understand that this might make some of you more anxious, but bear with me, there's a point in doing this. He says, she she told me that it increases your blood pressure, which of course can cause all kinds of problems like aneurysms and all that going on in your brain. It can give you ulcers. You're going to be sweating some of you in a minute, aren't you? It gives you ulcers, which cause a lot of pain. They can also explode, cause all kinds of problems. Um, It can give you acid reflux, which means you never stop coughing because you've got acid coming up into your esophagus. That can also cause cancer. It can give you dizziness. It can give you, make you faint. It can make you hyperventilate. It can, um, I actually threw up once. I was so anxious. It was before an exam, a Greek exam, which, you know, is understandable when you've done Greek. Um, it can make you have bowel disorders. So it's like you've had a curry every single day of your life. It can make you feel a suppressed appetite. Or, of course, these are all just the health issues that it, it, it leads to. They're also habitual problems, the fruit of anxiety. So I think a lot of people deal with their anxiety by running into all kinds of escapism. And some of these are, on the scale of things, relatively harmless, like watching too much TV, going on Facebook too, too often. But some of them are, are acutely dangerous. So obviously at the very, the, the very bad end of this is alcoholism. It just all comes back to anxiety. So when Jesus says, who of you, by being anxious can add a single hour to his life. He's kind of understating it, isn't he? If anything, anxiety shortens 
your life. And not only does it shorten it in length, it massively diminishes your life in quality. I don't think that, that Christ wants us to go around sort of preaching about how we're meant to live like these victorious, like rock star lives. It's not quite like that. But Jesus did promise us abundant life. He promised us a life that was full of joy. He promised us a life that was full of a sense of fulfillment, a, full of, a sense of God's presence. And anxiety battles against that. So that your life is not only diminished in length when you're an anxious person, but it is massively diminished in quality. You're just yet less useful. Fearful, anxious people are less useful for Christ. They do less with their lives. It's something we'll think about in just a few minutes. Number three, he says, don't be anxious because your father is lavish. And even you could think of him as wasteful. Let's read a few verses from verse 28. He says this. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Your father is lavish and even wasteful, he's saying. I grew up in a home where there was very, very little waste because we didn't have, we weren't poor, but we didn't have much to waste. My dad didn't earn a lot of money. Um, and some of the ways that exhibited was that uh, mum did not let, let us leave even a grain of rice on the plate when we finished dinner. Um, she would not take us to the barbers to have our haircuts. We had them done by mum, which often resulted in a lot of tears and tantrums. We, we were those kids who kind of had the bowl on the head and then the, the, the thing cut around. Um, we had, I'm not, this is not, I'm not saying it's for a sub story. Friends, we were fine. We're totally, I mean, comfortable lives. But I'm just saying there was no slack. There was no waste in our home. And um, one of the things was we, we didn't have, often it was just wearing sort of hand-me-down clothes. Now, any of you with brothers and sisters are familiar with this, I'm sure. I wore what James grew out of, and then when I grew out of it, usually it went to Joshua, with one exception, which is my, um, my shell suit trousers. Anyone remember <laughs> shell suits? Back in the 80s, we used to wear these nylon, shiny things that rustled as you walked, or shell suits, and I was told that they, they could explode if they caught fire. But anyway, that never happened to me, thankfully. But I do remember one day standing in front of a heater at Sunday school with my shell suit trousers. And before I knew it, I felt heat through the back of my leg. And a hole had grown as these things just melted under the radiant heat of this radiator. So Joshua did not have to wear those particular hand-me-downs. But we lived in a house where there was very little slack and very little waste. And so it's kind of reflected in the way we do church a little bit. We're um, using a, a borrowed sound system in a borrowed building. And maybe I'm a cheapskate, but this is how it's going to go for a little while, friends. Um, I know some friend of, a friend of mine has planted a church up the road. They're paying £1,000 a week just for the rent to have a place which is actually not a lot bigger than this. And guys, you'd have to be tithing a heck of a lot more if we were going to be considering that. So... <clears throat> No waste, no slack. We, we make use of everything. But what Jesus is saying here, and I think this is really fascinating, he's saying that our Father God is, is very wasteful. He, just look at the flowers, he says. 
Now, my wife often asks me to go and buy her flowers, and I often say no, because, <clears throat> um, because flowers, you know, you pay, what, 10 quid for a bunch, and they die three days later. And it grieves my heart to see these things wilting a few days, especially if they haven't been watered and they've been neglected. The one exception, of course, is orchids. I, lo- I like buying orchids because not only do they flower for like six to eight weeks, but I have learned from my Chinese mother-in-law how to make them reflower again and again. So it's like romance on a budget, which is fantastic. <laughs> but most flowers, when you think about flowers, most of them that, that grow up in the world around us are never seen by a pair of human eyes. And many of them have never even, the whole species, that have never even been discovered. Beauty that we have never imagined. So when Jesus says, look at the flowers of the field, they're arrayed in more splendor than Solomon was. And Solomon, he was the richest guy who ever lived. I think he wants us to get a feel for how lavish God is as a father. And that that ought to then have something of an effect on how we understand his provision towards us. One of the first books I read when I was a kid was uh, God Smuggler by a man called Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew um, was a crazy Dutchman, I think he's still alive actually, who would take Bibles into the communist Eastern Bloc and uh, smuggle them in his beetle across. He'd had compartments in his car, and they made vans with compartments, and they smuggled them through uh, checkpoints into Eastern Europe where they were banned. Anyway, his ministry started. He learned the ropes of how to trust God. As, as a young man, a Dutchman, coming to Britain, learning in a kind of missionary school, the ropes. And one of the things that he had to do was trust God for finances, And obviously, when you have no guaranteed source of provision, this is a huge deal. And he got to the point where he was, he tells a story about how he he got to the point where he he had no washing powder to wash his clothes. He had no toothpaste to brush his teeth. And he was kind of on the very edge, you know, and and he's thinking, where is is the money going to come from? And he found himself, I don't know if you've ever done this, he found himself walking down the street with his head down, I've only done this when I, I don't have any change for parking. Looking around for coins, because anything would help. And then he caught himself, and he thought, he said, this isn't the royal way. God is a father who's, who's also a king over the universe. And he doesn't want me to go around with my head hanging down, looking for the next coin to potentially buy you know, a piece of food or something. And of course, then he tells stories of God's provision. Hudson Taylor led the China Inland Mission. He was one of the pioneering missionaries into China where people had never heard about Jesus. And in fact, the work continues into this day. And Hudson Taylor had to live by faith. He had to support missionaries and all the mission work by faith, trusting that God would pour in the finances. But he wanted to insist that the God we believe in is not a miserly, mean, Scrooge type of God. He is generous and lavish. And so he said that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which is a, a verse out of the psalm. We need not be vegetarians, which is not out of the psalm, but I think is a natural inference from the psalm. Friends, we have a lavish God. Look at the lilies, Jesus says. Now you don't, Obviously, we could, we could take this as justification for all kinds of self-indulgence, couldn't we? 
And I know that there are, there are preachers who hear this stuff, they, they read like this section where Jesus says, oh, you have little faith, and their, their message is, if you have enough faith, you can wear Armani, and you can drive a BMW, and who knows, you might even have your own private jet, and I have never heard so much crap in all my life. Jesus has no interest in just making you live a kind of comfortable life like that. That's not what he's talking about here. But friends, neither does he want us to have a conception of God as somebody who's so mean that you don't know where your provision is going to come from, your clothes are going to come from, that he wants you to be embarrassed and ashamed because you don't have anything to wear. Look at the lilies, Jesus says. That's the God we believe in. Number four, he says, you're not an orphan. He goes on in verse 31, he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, remember these are the non-Jews, the people who did not know God. The Gentiles seek after all these things. So the whole days are preoccupied with trying to make sure they have enough food, enough drink, enough to wear. But he says, your heavenly Father knows what you need, knows that you need them all. I I could not think of a day in my life when I didn't believe in God. I don't know what your story is, but I was brought up to know and love and to believe in God. And it's something for which I am profoundly grateful. Because I cannot think of a more bleak way to live than to live without the knowledge of Father God. To have no Father in heaven means that when good things happen to you, you have no one to thank. I don't know if it's your experience, but I think that the ability to say thank you to God not enhances the joy in life, doesn't it? That the good things taste sweeter because we can say thank you. And it's also a bleak way of life because not only do we have no one to thank, we also have no one to run to when we are in need of rescue, when we are in danger. We have no security without God. Now that's true. Jesus is saying that's true of the Gentiles, those who who don't believe that God is their father, who don't know him as father. But Christian it can be functionally true of you when you stop saying thank you for the good things that God's poured into your life. If you're someone who's wrestling with anxiety right now, look at yourself. Don't you have a million things to say thank you to God for? I know that you may be facing hard times, and some of us are facing harder times than ever right now but you can still say thank you for the good. And not only that, but you can run to your Father in the worst of times and know that he is there for you. Don't act like you don't know God. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't act like you're an orphan. You have no one to thank and no one to run to in your, in your most anxious moments. Let your spirit and your mouth give birth to endless praises and thanks and prayers to the living God. You are not an orphan. I think that as Christians, you know, 
one of the things you notice about this section is that Jesus is saying, do not be anxious. It's a command. I think one of the things we don't understand about this faith that Jesus wants us to have, as opposed to fear and anxiety and stress, is it's not just a neutral issue. It's not just about whether you're a kind of anxious person. This is a moral issue. Christ wants you to be convicted to your heart that this is not just your foible, oh, I have a tendency to worry, but this is a sin issue. It's a whether you'll be obedient to Christ. Anxiety is not just something to sort of manage in your personality. It is a sin to repent of. Because it ultimately comes down to whether you believe in the God who is your Father. And I want you to hear that as something liberating. If this is part of your personality, then friends, you're doomed to be an anxious person for the rest of your life. If this is a sin that you can repent of, you have hope that you need never struggle in this way ever again. That there is always a route out of anxiety and fear. It's by repentance. It's by coming to the cross. It's by trusting God again as your father. I think that as Christians, we ought to have a kind of divine optimism. I don't mean the positive thinking that's advocated in the world. That is just a kind of wishful thinking. It's like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's like saying, I choose to be positive in my outlook, even though I have no greater objective reason to have a positive outlook. It's kind of self-deception. But a Christian calls this hope. And hope has an anchor, Hebrews says, in the heavenly places. We have a reason to think optimistically about life and about eternity. We have a God in whom we trust. And so we have a duty to have a good outlook on life and on what God is going to achieve through us and what he has in store for us in the future. You are not an orphan. Number five, he says, you have a higher purpose to be concerned with. Do not be anxious because you have a higher purpose than your daily worries to be concerned with. Let's read from verse 33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, he's talking about food, drink, and clothing, will be added to you. If I had a life verse, I think it might be this one. It's always had a resonance in my heart since I was a very young boy. It's one of those, the first verses I ever sort of stuck in my mind. To seek first the kingdom of God. I think that what it's about is this, that anxiety will derail you in life. I think it's a more dangerous thing than you realize. Anxiety will derail you in terms of stopping you from doing the things that you ought to do with your life. It's such a helpful question to ask. What would you do? I mean, particularly, what would you do for God today if you had no fear? How would you live differently if you were not afraid? Anxiety erodes at the very root of your decision making. And it, makes, it shapes how you live your life. And in particular, how you live your life for God. Your energies get diverted away from the things that God wants you to be concerned with. He says, seek first the kingdom. If you're concerned with all the things that make you anxious, all your energies are frittered away into a thousand other things than what Christ wants you to be focused upon. And you know, if you read your Bible, you'll find that this very fear lies at the root of some terrible decision-making. 
Just go and read the book of Exodus. It was fear that prevented people from entering into what God had promised them. Fear, anxiety, dread. It means that you'll always pull back at the last moment. You won't commit full on to what God's got in store for you. You'll pull back in generosity because you'll be hedging your bets. I better make sure that I have enough so you won't be lavish in your giving. You'll pull back in your obedience to what God has called you to do. I'm sure many of you feel that God has put things in your heart that you're meant to do with your life. You won't do them if you if you fritter your energies away in anxiety and you let anxiety shape your decisions. It has all kinds of destructive, erosive, corrosive effects on, on your, your will. In contrast, what Jesus wants is this. What does he want of you? He says, seek first the kingdom. I'm sure many of you have heard the kind of, it's very common, the productivity wisdom where they talk about the big blocks. You heard this? There's this kind of analogy that's used. They say, imagine your life is a container. You've got sand, grit, pebbles, and blocks. If you start by filling up your life with lots of tiny little concerns, you pour in the sand and you fill up the container, you won't be able to get any of the grit in, you won't be able to get any of the pebbles in, you certainly won't be able to put in any of the big blocks. I think it's a pretty sound piece of advice. They say, start the other way. Start with the big blocks. Put the big blocks in first. What are the big things that are important to you in life? And then fill in the gaps with some pebbles and then some grit. And finally, the sand will pour in and filter into every little corner. And it's pretty sound, wise advice for just how you ought to shape your time, your energies in life. But friends, that is exactly what Jesus is saying here. There is one great, enormous block that ought to occupy the entire center of your being. It is the kingdom of God. Your prayers, your energies, your life, your mission, your ambition, everything about you ought to be straining towards the kingdom of God. Jesus says that the kingdom of God advances by violence and violent men take hold of it. He meant people who have an energetic, determined, warrior-like spirit to be involved in the kingdom of God. And then he says the rest kind of takes care of itself once you've got that right. If I were to ask you the question, why do you do what you do? The thing that most occupies your life. The follow-on question ought to be, is it that the kingdom of God is your primary driver in that thing? I'd love to just pick on a few of you at this moment. Victor. Victor is a a city lawyer. We ought to be able to ask Victor the question, Victor, are you a lawyer for the kingdom of God, first and foremost, above everything else? I went to see Naomi act last night. It's a driving passion for which she has sacrificed a great deal to be an actress and to keep hoping for more of this and more work in this area. And we ought to be able to ask Naomi the question, are you an actress because the kingdom of God drives you more than anything else? You ought to be able to turn to the person next to you and say, do you do what you do? Not just in terms of your occupation, but everything that drives you, your life, your energies. 
Is it about the kingdom of God? And if you can say yes, Christ says, look, the rest is just going to fall into place. He's going to take care of you. Just get the first thing first. This book, Don't Waste Your Life, is a tremendous book. And it has a really, really memorable picture of this. I want to read to you a little section. John Piper's just appealing mainly to young people. I know most of us in this room fall into that category. And he's talking about what a tragic life is. A tragic life that's, that's wasted because it's not spent on the kingdom. And he puts it like this. He says, I'll tell you what tragedy is. I'll show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 98 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to your creator, be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest, don't buy it, don't waste your life. I have never been able to shake the memory of those words since I first read that book. Friends, that is what Christ is saying here. You can live an anxious life, or you can live a life that pursues the comforts of food, body, and clothing. Or you can pursue the kingdom. And it really is your choice. God wants to fill your life with fulfillment in pursuit of what he gives you. It's not the American dream. It's not any other kind of dream, but what God dreams for you. Lastly, number six, he says, you should focus on present concern. Like my child screaming in the foyer at the top of his lungs. Do not be anxious because you should focus on present concern rather than future fear. Let's read this last verse, verse 34. It says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We're not to be overly preoccupied with the future. Anxiety tends to obsess about the future, doesn't it? Most of you were probably too young to remember much about this, but in the run-up to the year 2000, there was this great pervading anxiety about the millennium bug. And it wasn't like SARS or bird flu or something like that. This was a computer bug, which everyone thought was going to cripple the world economy as all the, all the computers crashed when the date turned from the 31st of December 1999 to the 1st of January 2000. And I remember 
that whilst all this anxiety swirled around, the minute it turned to 2,000, and we're expecting this, this great crash and all the hospitals to break and everything to just go wrong, what happened? Absolutely nothing happened. It's pretty much the definition of wasted anxiety, isn't it? About a future that you don't know and you definitely can't control. Friends, so many of you are anxious about things that you do not know will happen and which you cannot control even if they do. You honestly don't know whether you have one day or 60 years to live. You're not in control of any of these things. And so Jesus says, anxiety about the future in that vague way is total waste. He says there's enough evil, enough trouble today to be concerned with. And if we could sort of sum that up in a couple of points, I think, that, I think what he's saying is this. He's saying, on the one hand, that there ought to be, you know, to use modern jargon, I think he's saying something like we need to be present in the moment. I don't mean in the kind of airy-fairy um, way that it's, it's used. I mean, I mean in the sense that Jesus modeled that. You ever notice when you read the Gospels, as Jesus is going from place to place, you know he's working to a grand agenda. It says that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. We know that he came into the world for the purpose of going to the cross and then rising from the dead. So his whole 33 years were focused on that end goal. And yet, it's not as though he lives a life that's so blinkered that he can't see what's going on around him. A woman comes up and touches him. He's like, what just happened? I felt virtue go out from me. Woman, you're clean. A centurion sends someone to, to come and heal, and, and, he, and he, he responds immediately with healing the servant. A woman is dragged to him, caught in adultery, and Jesus has the time to tenderly deal with her. Wherever he goes, whatever he does, the concerns that are around him are the concerns that he holds in his heart. The evil that's around him is the evil that he is solving. The trouble that he is dealing with is what he is present for. And the trouble with us being anxious people is that it makes you pretty much useless for the people and the situations that are around you. You become so eaten up with your own often irrational fears that you cannot live to serve others. You cannot live to bless people around you in the way that Christ did. So I think in some sense he's sort of saying that we ought to be present in the moment, conscious of the situations that Christ has put you in to deal with right now. Don't let anxiety steal that opportunity. But here's another way I think he's speaking to us. I think he's saying something like this, that his grace is sufficient for today. Here's how one author puts it. He puts it like this. I thought it was really just so perfectly put. He says, for his disciples, today's grace, as God's enabling power, provision, and help, is sufficient only for today. And it shouldn't be wasted on tomorrow. If tomorrow does bring new trouble there'll be new grace to meet it. Can you see how the foundation of what Christ is talking about is this? 
that you have to live in a kind of moment-by-moment trust in your Father God. It's, you know, I've met some people, know some people who live in a very hand-to-mouth way. You get your paycheck on Friday, you go drinking Friday night, and you hope that you've got enough money to see you through to the next paycheck next Friday. They call it hand-to-mouth. And it's not a very wise way to live. But in a Christian sense, it, it's kind of what God wants of us in a spiritual way. Remember, we were talking about the, the, the Israelites in the book of Exodus. At one point, they're wandering around and around in the desert, and God has to miraculously provide for them manna, food from heaven. And he gives them a very curious command. He says, do not gather enough food so that you'll have enough for tomorrow. You've only got to gather enough for today's meal. And some people anxiously went around gathering more because they thought they might not show up tomorrow, so we better make sure we've got plenty in the larder. And immediately, overnight, this stuff just goes rotten and it's full of maggots, and God doesn't allow them to keep it for more than a day. He was trying to teach them that God has enough grace, not just for today. He'll continue to be gracious to you tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, and on and on. And in a way, I think the kind of trust that he's teaching us about is the most childlike, simple trust imaginable. When I was a kid, the most anxiety I ever experienced was wondering what mum was going to cook for dinner. But I knew she'd cook, and I knew she'd cook pretty darn well. I didn't concern myself with tomorrow. And that's what childlike faith in God looks like. Saying, God, I know you're going to give me enough manna for today. I want to speak to you in two ways as I close. Most of us are Christians. We know and love and believe in Jesus, and we know and love God as our Father. You are called to live in this way without anxiety because it is a testimony about the God that you believe in. I've said it already. I want you to understand and underline that as the one thing that you take away from today. Anxiety is preaching about a God who doesn't love you. I think it'll be important for you as we take communion, as we take a moment of prayer, if you're a person who who you live with a constant sense of fear and anxiety and dread, often about you don't even know what, I want you and I want to encourage you to to treat it as sin and say, God, I want to bring this to the cross and I want to ask your forgiveness because I know that you want me to live in trust and in confidence. But let me also speak to you if you're a person who, when you, you you hear me talk about a childlike trust in God as your father, and you could not honestly say that you know God as your father. That is exactly what God wants to offer you today. You could walk out of this dingy church building with an utterly transformed life because you know the God who made you and who is your father in heaven. There's some words in the book of Romans, a letter written by Paul, where he describes the experience of what it means to become God's child. And he puts it in this language which has resonated with Christians 
again and again through the centuries. He writes this. That we who are led by the Spirit of God are sons or children of God. And you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. In other words, your life without God was a life dominated by uncertainty and fear. You may have suppressed it, you may have ignored it, but under it all was the great uncertainty of not knowing what's to come and what lies beyond the grave. He says, we didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Once you're a Christian, you don't have to be afraid anymore. He says, but you have received the spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption as children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Daddy, Father. And then he says, if you're a child, then you're an heir of the great inheritance that he wants to pour on you. If you're afraid, God wants to deal with that fear, and I think he can deal with it even right now. I'm going to pass out bread and wine, and for us who are Christians, this is our opportunity week on week to come back to the cross, our great hope, and to repent of the sins like this sin of mistrust and anxiety. It's a wonderful opportunity to do that. But if you are not a Christian, I'd encourage you either to let it pass you by and just pass it on and there's no embarrassment in doing so, or to take this as your first communion in which you say to God, God, I want to know you as my Father. I want you to forgive me of my sin and I want to be part of your family. If you want to pray that, I'm going to leave just a couple of minutes as we have quiet. And I encourage you to have dealings with God even where you're sat.